Hello and welcome to the Emotional Word Podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition uh, and today I am very excited because I have um, somebody, my guest on the podcast introduced me to a word um, a while ago and it's one that I just love and when she used it, she used it with an image of a tree um, on a slide and I just, it, it's a word that both um, kind of phonetically and in its uh, in its meaning just says a lot about what we do um, or I think the, a lot of what we do in, in the theme of the podcast today so today is about emotion at work and organizational change and that is something that is gnarly now I love the gnarliness because it's like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure gnarly but it's also that kind of knotty tricky hard um, difficult stuff and that's what um, organizational change often is so without further ado let's get our guest on the air and welcome to the emotion at work podcast Julie Dreiber thank you very much thank you how are you I'm really well thank you yeah, I am all good. All good. Um, so as per usual with the Emotional Web Podcast then, um, let's do our open with an unexpected yet innocuous question. And uh, this episode's question comes inspired, well, to a certain degree inspired by Neil Morrison. In the, um, He wrote a blog recently and in it he talked about um, thanking bus drivers. So my question to you, Jules, is do you thank a bus driver? I think I do. Um, yeah, I I was definitely raised um, on the polite end of the scale. Um, okay. And I think that stuff's really important. Um, so I read Neil's blog, and I, I, I do think that's right. I think if you say thank you first, um, it is always a good... Uh, it's, it's good to be a role model. So, yes, I think I do. Okay. And and is it does it uh, and what's your are you a vocal thank you are you like a nod from are you a nod on the way past are you a raise the hand how how do you show your gratitude to the bus driver? Um, I think I'd just say thank you. I I wouldn't raise my hand. I'm not like a high five fist bump kind of a hey um, person. <laughs> like no 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 no. It's a contained thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> as as one leaves the bus. Um, yeah no I. I just think it's really, it's just like a kind thing to do. So I do, yeah, I do mm-hmm. say thank you to people for stuff, and I've I've started um, I've started saying have a good day to people as well in shops. So like after they've served me, I've noticed that I've gone have a good day at the end of it. Um, ah okay. And just yeah, like I I think I chat more now than I than I used to in my twenties. It's the joy of getting older. You you, you give a shit a lot less. Oh, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, oh, you am I? Okay. Okay. I won't. I yeah, won't say yeah. anything too rude, um, but I am. I am known occasionally for having quite a potty mouth, so I'll, I will try. I polite but potty oh, mouth. Okay. There you go. I, I mean, I, I know we're <laughs> going to talk about. This. I know we're going to use the c word today because we're going to talk about change. Um, but you know, any 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 shits or uh, other similar expletives are all right. We because when I when I upload the podcast to iTunes, I can just make it. I can make it known that it's explicit. So I, I'm pretty sure on the podcast in the past we've had the f bomb dropped at least at least four or five times I think. So um, any any potty mouth stuff is welcome. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, so that's that door has now been kicked open. <laughs> <laughs> kicked wide open. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So because so coming from Bristol, the general kind of um, uh, is it is a cheers drive. As you get off, that's the yeah. that's the way that it was always used to be, kind of thanking the driver. Um, 
but what I find because most of the time when I get the bus now I get the bus in London because where I live uh, up near Lincoln the bus service in my village isn't great there's like five buses a day so it's not like a it's not a regular thing for me to do to get the bus up around here so when I do I get it in London but because you often get off at the back you know or the you know the, uh-huh. either the doors yeah. at the back or the doors in the middle um I'm always a bit like oh do I shout down the bus you know because I don't walk to the front because that's how most people get on so do I shout down the bus? Do I just kind of nod my head at the driver as I get off? So I've, I've, I would say in the main, I shout down the bus, accepting the fact that if I am slightly embarrassed, I'm about to get off the bus and no one's going to see me again because I'm in London and you know, there's millions of people there. Um, but yeah, that, that changed the dynamic for me a little bit when I started to, when I was thinking in London, I was like, oh, wow, because I'm not going to walk past. So I can't just do a cheers drive on my way past out the door because <laughs> I'm getting off at the back of the bus. Yeah, I'm, um, I think I'm quite... Um... When I'm in London, I am super friendly and polite. Like I, I go full. So it's almost like a, a sort of nihilistic response to being in. It's like London. You know, people are very focused and they're moving around and they're not going to smile. And I just kind of do grin and smile and say hello to people and like when I'm on the tube, like no, not when I'm actually in the tube carriage, because I think oh, okay. I think people think you're slightly bonkers if you're in the tube carriage, but. You know, just as I as I wander around London, I do tend to. Um, I've done that for a long time. I tend to kind of just smile and go hello and stuff. Yeah, I mean, but I can't remember if I said this on the podcast before or not. But back when I used to run a lot, um, for a while I, I had this kind of. I don't think I've ever shared this actually. But anyway, here we go. I had this kind of like dream about being um, being known as the friendly runner. So whenever I would go out running. I would say hello and good morning to every single person that I passed. Because um, often I'd be out like early, so seven, half seven in the morning. So other runners or people, if I was running around Hyde Park, people that were um, riding their horses or whatever, I'd be like, morning, morning, or towards the end of the run, morning. Um, as I went, I was like, yeah, do you reckon I can get this reputation of a, of a oh, I saw the friendly runner in London this morning because he's the nutbag who, who runs around saying good morning and hello to every single person that he runs past. I love that. I just love that. Yep, there you go. That kind of thing. That kind of thing. In the face, yeah, in the that. face of relentless grumpiness, one has to do what one can. <laughs> one has to bring some joy. Absolutely. <laughs> and and I, I'm wondering then if that's our segue into change or organisational change in the in the face of relentless grumpiness. Now it might not be relentless grumpiness, but organisational change is a notoriously tricky. Um, or gnarly to use them um, to use the word that I love um, it is a it is a gnarly world to navigate yeah it can well yeah I it can be um, it can yeah, be it, it, it more often than not is um, but I suppose it depends what you're um, I suppose it depends what you're thinking about really I want to cut this bit out do you want to start that back no, no, again? So, Do you want to start that back no, again? No, no, no. So I, I, no, I guess, so, so I'm thinking a, few, a couple of things. So one is that, um, so maybe it's not relentless grumpiness then, but organisational change, I, in my experience anyway, is relentless effort. Um, yeah, so even when you think you're making progress, any attempt to, you know, kind of taking your foot off the gas or or shifting the focus is is met with rapid return to status quo 
So if I think about some of the work I did with um, with Boots Opticians, you know, we we launched a you know comp- and you and I worked together on on some of the aspects of this, but we, you know we launched a new company purpose. We um, you know galvanised you know, different parts of what the organisation did in terms of its you know some of its HR processes, but also some of its operational processes. You know, we we used the the purpose as a way to galvanise all of that together. Yet the the speed at which um, status quo would be restored if we diverted any attention away from it just amazed me you know it was really quickly back to how it was done before yeah so I, do, I don't I don't really hear a question in that but my observations around that stuff is is that sounds right to me um so mm. I've I've been working with organizational change with culture change for probably about 20 years so I was, I'm very lucky I kind of started into it quite early one mm. of my very first proper jobs was um, was working on a culture change program within um, the post office in Jersey and um, and I think what I learned very quickly from that was that you have to be in a number of different places so if you if you're genuinely thinking about changing an organization you you've got to tap into lots and lots of different points in the organization um, and I think you know you can talk about well when I first started thinking about purpose wasn't actually all that trendy so you you had to have a vision so vision yeah. vision's been kicking around since I've been working in all this stuff I think purpose mm-hmm. is something which has come in as being more important uh, more recently to be honest you know yeah, um, I agree. So that word, you must have an organisational purpose. Uh, and I think what we try and do is kind of codify codify the, you know, where we're trying to get to. Um, but but the status quo is, is hardwired. Like we join organisations for a particular reason. We, um, particularly when we first, when we're first beginning into, um, into our workspace, the organisations that we work for are very, very formative. They they help us understand what, what's permissible at work, how how one does things around here. Um, it's mm. it's an education, so you're you're formed by the organisations that you've worked with, and and by you know what you've studied or what you've been an apprentice in, or you know how you've how you've come into that role. All of those things kind of form you, and so the status quo is quite. Important in lots of ways you know we join an organization for our own reasons and then if the organization decides and I'm, I'm conscious that I'm talking about the organization as if it were a entity alone and of course that's just not necessarily the case but okay. I'm you know we join organizations and if the organization then decides that it's going to shift or change or grow or um, restructure or downsize um, you know we didn't necessarily cut that deal that's like psychologically we're a bit like oh hello I'm not sure you know that's that's not why I work here I work here for perhaps different reasons so I think that's why that's one of the reasons that status quo is quite pervasive we quite like things to remain as stable and as steady as we can as we can muster um for, for all sorts of reasons for safety reasons for identity reasons for um energy reasons you know um yeah there's there's very few folk that are like yay let's change lots often frequently yeah some people love it all the time some people love it and 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 
get bored and adapt and adopt well in, in constantly changing states. Um, and others prefer things that are a bit more stable and steady. So when you talk about safety in that then, so you know you said there's some identity stuff which um, I'm exceptionally fascinated by, but and I'll come back to that a bit later. But you talked about safety. What, what did you mean by safety in that? There's some safety aspects or some safety parts of it. Um, so just that really. I mean, I'm... I'm a... You're talking like psychological safety or, or physical safety or... Well, yeah, yes, yes. Well, the two can go hand in hand. I mean, you can you can be working in like um, potentially crazy, dangerous workspaces. You know, you know, out on oil rigs, or you know, I've done some work in oil and gas, and you've got people who are out in like what was madly kind of unsafe environments. Hmm. But they do whatever they need to do to to make themselves feel safe and make the environment around them safe and that's both physically safe and psychologically safe so there's you know there's things in place to stop you from um from being hurt or killed um and we are social beings we are hardwired to be you know together and look out for each other and and all of those things so safety i think yes psychological safety but you know, a safe environment, a safe place, all of those things I think are really, really important to us, which alludes more to status quo than it does to change often, because change can feel very unsafe, it can feel very destabilising, it can be, Mm. um, it's just not the deal, that's not the deal. Yeah, I I was, I I did a piece of work recently with a, um, a company who was celebrating their fifth their fifth birth they didn't call it anniversary they called it birthday so the company was celebrating its fifth birthday um you know startup type thing you know grown to grown from you know, founder to 50 people over the space of those five years mm-hmm. recently had some um private equity kind of cash injection to to drive growth you know and expansion uh, in on the next phase you're pre- you know, predicting to go from 50 to 150 over the space of about 18 months ish which is a huge transformation yep. um but one of the one of the aspects that made them different was there's like an unwritten rule in that sector um that you have to operate in this way and they deliberately chose they made a strategic decision or uh, you could argue whether it's a strategic. they made a decision when they set up that they were never going to play that game um, and now they're reaching a point where their their, their distribution um, model is changing, and <clears throat> the players that are in the bigger distribution market that they're going into are actively pushing against their kind of disruptive approach. So the the sure. sector says you have to work in this way. They're saying no, we will never do that. They're now starting to to expand into markets that are saying if you don't do that we don't know if we're ever going to work with you and then you've got this kind of tension that's happening Mm. between there's a huge opportunity there for the for the for the financial growth and the reputational growth of working with the you know working in these other distribution uh, channels yet we may have to compromise or go back on the one thing that we said we were different about Mm -hmm. And uh, I wasn't brought in to explore that conversation, but it came out quite quickly as, as part of the work I was doing. Um, 
and there was a, a real sense of um I don't know if the right word's betrayal. I don't know if that's a bit too. That's probably a bit too grand. But a sense of this isn't what I signed up. If if you do that, that's not what I signed up for. Sure. You know, if that's the choice the company makes, that's not what I signed up sure. for as, a, as an individual. And that would really make me challenge. You know, whether or not this is the right place for me. Sure. Um, and and that you know, making it feel or it feeling um, insecure or unsafe was was definitely kind of prevalent in there. Um, and it, it led to a really fascinating discussion between the founders and you know people that have recently you know, joined the organization those that have been there a while and different people's perspectives on if we did change what would that mean um and and i in that session i used your word actually i used gnarly in it um because i said it's what, not wholly you know, my word by the way i, I didn't i didn't like it if, if, <laughs> if you look in the dictionary it. there's a picture of you next to it <laughs> oh dear <laughs> lord <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, what I was saying was, what I'd rather is that we discuss these. You know, we discuss this openly. You know, with all with everybody in the room now before we make a decision, rather than a decision be made and then people feel genuinely betrayed that they weren't consulted yeah. or you know someone with it as well. So this. So again, I'm not sure there's a question in there either. I guess I'm just sharing. Yeah, no. This, so there's there's a lot in what you're saying there. So there's there's there, there's a few things that happen in those situations and what you're describing is um so what i would what i would look at in that situation is you you have uh, founders and founders of um businesses tend to have a particular relationship with that business the business tends to reflect the founder and so the business will have some sort of uh personality or spirit or whatever which will be akin to the founding partners or the founding person um, yeah. and, and founders tend to be very attached to certain things in certain ways and they've put a team around them which are very reflective often of of who they are and how they are um, so there's there's always things in those moments in those decision moments about what the shift will be for the organization um, what begins to play out are things like identity um, against safety. So you talked about dynamic tension. You talk about the tension mm. building. Wherever there is tension building, there is um, there is apprehension, there is nervousness, and there is also opportunity for creativity. There is opportunity for difference, for growth, for expansion. So those those moments are very, very, very common. Um, and I think when you're working with founder organizations um and i i've done a, a bit of work with startups um that that's a reasonably common conversation it's a reasonably common challenge and that um the minute that you uh, work with venture capitalists or you know um, investment angels and it, there is a change there is a shift and quite often you have to work quite closely with a founder about what that means for them, what that means for the organisation, mm. but I but I think you also see that in other organisations that are going through um, like growth, perhaps a rapid growth. You know, in a non-founder organisation where you've got a chief exec and a board, um, yeah. you know, they, they are presented often with that as a as a you know what does this mean? That's going to fundamentally change how we do things. Um, but also more established sort of big bureaucratic organisations frequently grapple with um how do we modernize how do we become more digital how do we um become more efficient and effective um in 
the public sector, you know, for the last 10 years, there's been a conversation about austerity and doing more with less and how do we do that? So mm-hmm. all of these things, all of these external forces sit around your your organisation, the way that we organise ourselves and ask us questions. We, you know, we then are asked questions about how is this going to be? How are we going to respond um, are we still going to be a good place to work? You know, I, I, do we wish to hold on to the bonkers bureaucracy? Quite often, yes. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> oh, <you>. Lord. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. Bless you. Um, yeah. So, you know, this is me talking. I'm on, I'm on a grand sweep now going, oh, yes, you know, I see this is the world according to, um, according to Fuchsia Blue. I mean... I, I see myself as being very, very fortunate. Um, we work with lots of different types of organisations. So, mm-hmm. um, so at the moment, I'm working with um, a university, a fire service, um, my, my my most beloved Scottish ballet, who I adore, and are very small, and you know are punching way above their weight um, just because of the way that they are organised in their mm-hmm. culture. Um, people like Mazda in Europe like so that I have this like really mad range of um of clients that we work with typically each one of them is going through some sort of transition or is stretching for something different and the the themes around identity around belonging around how do we shape our future together um around how do we plan organize and control our work are fairly universal um, irrespective of the organization that you are um, operating within um, and so there's a core conversation I think in each one of these systems which is unique depending on context so it's, mm-hmm. it's not that every conversation is identical they're really not circumstances will dictate how the conversation shapes itself but um at the heart of it all, there is, for me anyway, the, the, there are there are questions about our, yeah, our identity, our emotions, how we see ourselves, how are we allowed to be, how are we allowed to thrive, um, and you know, and there's 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 this kind of very lovely thing that you can look at in terms of you know what are the what are the power structures and what is our ability to speak into those power structures and make a difference mm. oh blimey we're going uh, we're going wide today <laughs> that's all right i like wide um well there was a lot in there that i wanted to to pick up on can i pick up on that last bit around power structures yeah go for it so um that's not something i've heard of before so i, I well as in i've heard of power and structures but i've not I've not heard those two as kind of grouped together or placed together as a as a way of looking at it. So what what does that what does that mean? How how do you how do you look at those or how do you map those power structures? How does that work? Okay, so um, if I am looking at um, if I am looking at a shift in culture with an organisation, one of the things that I will always pay attention to are the power structures. So who has formal power? So you look at the hierarchy the founding, whatever. Um, yeah. So who has who has been given formal power? But then what you want to look at is 
what is the informal power structure. So who actually has the power? You know, who's who's really making the decisions in all of this? Because you can sometimes have a chief executive and actually it's the chair who's making the decisions or mm. it's the FD who's making the decisions or, you know, whatever. And in a team, you know, there can be a leader, but actually it's, you know, it's... Um, a genie who's been made here for 20 years who has all the power and influence and she's the one who's you know, kind of uh, allowing or not allowing things to happen so it, part of any cultural picture if you're looking at organisational change part of any cultural picture is understanding um, both the power both the formal and the informal power structures because again we are social beings we, we, um, we organise ourselves around certain things we we decide who it is we want to speak to who we want to influence who's likely mm. to deliver for us um and that's you know the if if you don't have a sense of what's going on and who's got the power um you you're kind of missing the emotion stuff will just dissipate um you, you need both you need both power and uh, and love and there is a martin luther king quote about power and love which I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, I'll find it and put you. it in the show notes. So it's, it's, but it, it basically says if you know if you only have power, it goes one way, and if you only have love, it goes the other way. And and actually, any organisational change, any change requires both. You you require that um, the agency that sits behind power, the 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 driving force, but you also require the communion that sits around. Um, love, connection, belonging, identity, those those two things are exquisitely linked. Um, and, and if you're looking at culture change for, through the lens that I look at culture change, that's really important. And, and I'm selfishly curious then, so um, in that some clients... Um, Actually, no, I wouldn't be fair to say clients because invariably I don't end up working with them, um, uh, are often quite nervous about me talking about emotion in a very overt way in in, the, in what I do. Um, and, and I can imagine um, the notion of talking about love um, being reluctantly um, worked with as well. Is that, is that something that you experience that you know if so if you're talking about for example love and power is that do you, you know, do you get any resistance to to that kind of terminology or to that language or not um yeah i, pr- I probably do i mean um there are certain boards and uh you know panels and things that i go to where if i started if i started wanging on about love they'd just be like so I'm, I'm sorry what um and that's part of the power dynamic you know the power, part of the power dynamic is not showing um softness and connection to emotion and things like love is just seen as being you know a bit a bit oodly moodly and fluffy which of course i i kind of love because to me it's the very opposite the um the the emotion the heart of the organization is is very very tricky to sit with and and pay attention to it's much much easier to pay attention to process and outcome and transaction and nice neat structures that we can control like that stuff is actually pretty easy you know 
show me a, show me a, a conversation about building an operating model, a target operating model. You can have an entire day on building an operating model where you don't bump into like you know a great deal of uh, emotion or and that's lovely. You just have a whole day. It's like building Lego. It's just kind of funsies. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, whereas. Then show me the day where people are sitting talking about the implementation of that mod- that operating model and how the hell they're going to take pe- get people to take it on and the fact that there may have to um, be redundancies or you know move people around and and suddenly it becomes a lot more difficult and the reason that becomes more difficult is because you are dealing with emotion belonging identity connection you are dealing with people who love their job you are dealing with people who love their status quo so you you mm. cannot it just doesn't it just doesn't work you 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 can't do change without paying attention to this stuff and i'm i am mostly apologetic i'm unapo- not apologetic i'm mostly unapologetic about that now so i just see that as well, this is how it is. Um, and I think often I'm I'm brought in for that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not, I don't worry about that too much. I, I just try and talk to people about, like, you're going to bump into emotion. You're going to bump into, you know, people talk about resistance. Oh, resistance to change. Yeah, that stuff's mm-hmm. going to happen. You're going to bump into attachment. You're going to bump into... Um, people feeling disorientated about what's been asked of them you're gonna you're gonna have Mm -hmm. to give your reasons in perhaps non-rational ways that that's gonna be your job you know if you want to bring this change around that's the work um and are you up for that because um for me transactional leadership on a day-to-day basis when you're kind of just leading people um, through what they need to do, you're getting them through the year end. You know, you're 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 leading their performance. You're um, is quite different from transformational leadership, where you're leading people into uncertainty, and you yourself are feeling uncertain about what the outcome may be. And you you know, um, it requires a different thing from you personally. It, requires different visibility it requires different emotion you your team will be looking at you going why are we doing this you know what are we doing this for so these are I think these are well-known things I don't think I'm saying anything that folk don't experience or know um but it's how do we codify that and explain it and help people work with it I suppose that's the that's the trick and, and I guess that's something I'll come back to in a minute. So in terms of how do, how do we codify, how do we explain, and how do we help people work with it? Um, because I think that'll be a useful. Um, I think that'll be a useful thing to explore. Because I agree with. Well, are you saying stuff folk know already? So I think it's probably stuff that folk inherently know, maybe, or they yeah you know, they experience through the work that they do. But it's certainly not been, you know, certainly not been the focus of. Um, so if I think about the you know the formal learning, whether it be you know academic or otherwise, that I've done around change and organisational change and organisational development, it's only recently in the last probably I don't know five maybe ten years that the that that you know that kind of emotional aspects of it mm. have been involved. 
and even then it's when you're talking about you know people are trotting out Cotter or um, you know Kurt Lewin or, or or whoever that is um, and, and they don't talk about identity issues or about uh, say identity issues sorry they don't talk about identity concerns or belonging concerns or um, you know control over our work concerns or those sorts of things you know so I think so that's what I you know so I agree with you to a point that I think people know but it's also I don't think it's been if I think about our listener I don't think it's been part of their it's been part of their work but I don't think they've had that necessarily that help or support I, certainly I didn't get it anyway yeah I think um so I, th- I think these types of conversations would completely weird out your average MBA student um so mm-hmm. we teach business we do like you're going to get a master's in business administration and we're gonna we're gonna teach you and, and I think this is changing a little bit, but it's still very much that um, if you want to run a successful business, you know, it's, it's bottom line, it's, you know, they, they spend a day, which I just adore. Um, I have a I have a memory. So I, um, I did my master's in um, organisational change at uh, Ashridge Business School a few years mm-hmm. ago. And, um, yeah. and, you know, you spend three years really thinking about, you know, change and writing about it and, you know, kind of really kind of getting in about it. And we met the MBA guys in the bar and they were like, yay, we've just done change. We were like, oh, right. And they'd spent like two days. <laughs> we were there going, we are soaked, soaked in all the theory and the permutations. And they'd kind of done it in two days. Um, and they were, you know, they were there's a lot of stereotypes that I could I could now kind of fire forward about the MBA guys and girls that we met but they were pretty much kind of quite apprentice-esque in lots and lots of ways um Mm. so my point is I think that we don't uh we don't teach business we don't teach success we don't talk about um uh, capitalism in terms of you know cost emotional or social cost um, often and um, and in my view we ought to you know I, th- I think um, we are now entering a time where thinking about uh, our ethics and our resources and uh, how we are with each other is is probably more pertinent than ever um, and more challenged than ever as well um, mm. so from my perspective I think I've been talking about this for ever I think I've always looked at identity and belonging and power and those types of things in my practice but I'm a sociologist by trade you know way back in the day so I think I've been trained Mm. to kind of look at that stuff Um, and maybe it is coming more into the forefront now maybe maybe uh, maybe after years and years of trying to do organisational change and going, this doesn't really seem to hold terribly well. People are looking for alternatives. Maybe there's a rise of um, emotional intelligence in the system. I, I don't know, but um, whatever. It feels it feels like a nice time, a, a good time to be to be practicing the, the 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 type of work that you and I do for sure. Absolutely, yeah. I agree. Um, yeah, so I, I, I like you, I'm, a, I'm fascinated by the sociological aspects of it. Um, although I, I came at it from a different way. So I, I did sociology at A-levels, but I hated it because it was all about 
it was all about Marxism and Leninism. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and all of that stuff. I was like, no, that's not what I want. I want I want the I want the the interactional people based stuff. Okay. Right. Um, I didn't want the I didn't want the big societal stuff. I mean, I, I I get the importance of it, but I didn't want that then. I was like, no, I want to understand people and how they interact and why they, how they work. Um, but the what I find interesting about the the work that that you and I guess to a certain degree I do is the because it's the interplay or the overlap of those identities so it's yeah it's the micro identity that the individual kind of has and negotiates for themselves um within the workplace then you've got their internal representation of their identity and how they see themselves because not they're not always consistent they may be slightly different mm. between the version of self that's negotiated in the workplace and the version of self that they see within mm-hmm. And then you've got the and then you've got the identity of the either the organizational structures. So that could be within you know within the function or within the department. And then you've got the organizational identity as a whole, um, and the extent to which then we we take on or we subsume different aspects of those different identities. Yeah. So that when we're talking on behalf of finance or on behalf of HR and or on behalf of you know the organization as a whole we we hear it in or I hear it in in people's speech and they say oh with my finance hat on or with my HR hat Mm. on or with my organizational hat on you know they're they're talking about those different variables and aspects of their identity but I I guess I think the challenge is that um I'm I'm less again I'm less sure I said that twice now in this podcast I'm less sure that there's a there's a deep appreciation of those different aspects of identity how they interact and how they interplay with each other and and what and how all of that is to a certain degree checked up in the air when organizational change is happening um yeah no i think that's right because most of us don't spend you know vast amounts of time sitting around uh, mulling on our organizational identity most of us are just kind of cracking on with it and it doesn't come up until it comes up you know most of us are just kind of shambling through life kind of cracking on with it and then something happens it's like oh there's going to be an organizational restructure hell's teeth what does that mean you know uh for me and and then things um that's the safety thing you are you become unsafe and it throws up a whole bunch of questions that perhaps you've not had to ask before or you know needed to ask before um Mm. and I, i i think that's i think that's perfectly yeah, I think that's perfectly. I think that's perfectly fine. I would worry if you know there was there was too much kind of sitting around thinking about this stuff. <laughs> I think life's often too short for such things. However, um, where where I think I have those conversations most often professionally is um, is coaching. Like so, when when I'm coaching folk, yeah, that's. Yeah whatever the presenting issue is at the beginning of the coaching um, arrangement, whatever it is that we are ostensibly working on, um, inevitably, uh, and and I think it's probably because I work with, I I do tend to work with people who are going through some semblance of transition. So Mm -hmm. getting ready for promotion or, you know, in in a job and starting to kind of think about how the hell do I do this job or whatever, um, a number of people I've worked with have been post sort of returned to work after some sort of mental health um, episode and and ha- are returning in a changed state, you know, post mm. maternity. Um, to, you know, the, I I am 
I am changed. And so whatever the presenting issue is at the beginning, we almost inevitably end up working with identity. We, we end up working with who am I now? Who am I in this? What is my, mm-hmm. what is my authority, my power, my narrative um, within this organisation? How do I operate effectively and, um, you know, make a mark or get on with people or whatever? It's it, very, very often it comes down to identity. Now, arguably, that's because you're working with me and I'm going to ask you questions about it. But, you know, <laughs> but, but I think I, I think if you ask lots and lots of coaches, they would say the same thing, you know. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, again, whether this because, you know, you and I, uh, 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 we have similar interests then, you know, for me, it, it's often the same. You know, it comes back to... Um, it does come back to the the identity aspects of you know who am I now and who am I in here and um, how does that work and how does that fit <laughs> with who I was and who I might have to be in the future. Yeah, mm. and what am I not allowed to do? Or yeah. What am I allowed to do? Ooh, okay, mm. and can we play with that? That's always that's always a nice invitation. I'm not allowed mm. to uh, really. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So earlier on, you talked about um, uh, helping people, you know, or, or helping people or organisations codify, explain, um, and, and helping people through some of this stuff. Um, if I may be so bold as to ask, what are some of the what are some of the strategies or approaches that you might use then to to support um, with that? I guess coaching is one of them. I guess. Um, um, okay, so my new, it's my new favourite thing. I think um, I, I I wrote um, I wrote a blog a wee while ago about um, about organisations and you know like fighting fog, you know digital transformations and the and the fog of organisations. I think one of my most favourite things at the moment um, is is kind of looking at how do we codify, <laughs> how do we codify and simplify and explain some of the cultural things that are happening around people. So it's it's mm-hmm. it, it's it's doing some work to kind of make obvious some of the invisible hand stuff that can that can kind of play out in organisations and those might be power or symbols or whatever. Um, so the, the the typical way of doing that at the moment is um, is some sort of inquiry. So it's working with some doing some one-to-one conversations and then doing group conversations as well to to go mm-hmm. to to ask about what it's like to work here to get people to explain um, their experience of leadership of relationships of um, how do we communicate with each other like how's the best way to engage with you you would be astonished at the number of times um, you sit in rooms with people and they'll go like if you really want to engage us do it this way and then you look at all the engagement strategies that are running and you go okay none of them reflect what people are asking for um and yeah so you just kind of hang out like I see I'm not allowed to say hang out because that makes it sound like we're just sort of um playing I need to make it sound much more um, professional but um you you oh just just can you promise me one thing though Can you promise me you'll never have face into? Can you promise me you'll never use that as a phrase? Face into? What does that mean? Uh, Like if you were to... um, So what what you would describe as kind of hanging out with or or sitting with um, is when you sort of... Where you have to... uh, 
address or like leaning in um, is that that type of thing yeah but yeah 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 like yeah oh, yeah so okay. like leaning into or facing into. I, can't, I listen i can't promise anything if i've if i've been working with um if i've been working with an organization that regularly lo- uses the term lean in or whatever I, I tend to find that i i'll end up saying it and then i have to kind of once I stop working with them, I, I sort of have to decompress slightly and go, no, that's not my language. That's like I've sort of, okay. I've sort of, in a chameleon fashion, I've sort of adopted it yeah. for for a wee while, and then I've got to go, oh no, no, get rid of that. Um, rid I of have that. yet to pass on gnarly. That's definitely one of mine. But um, if I discover an organisation that is now regularly using the term gnarly to describe their organisational change, then. Perhaps my work here is done. I don't know. Um, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. So, no, and and in those um, like in those inquiries, you are. I am. We are fishing around for uh, for levers, for powers. Like what what is happening here? What's the kind of phenomena that people are experiencing? And then there's an odd moment where you have to sort of sit down with all the data and go through it and go, okay, so leadership here's some of the things that are happening the leadership will typically go we don't know why we brought you in like we already know that but then the magic i think is in helping them understand why that phenomena is happening um and sometimes the interpretation of the phenomena is this is a terrible thing for the business you know Mm. um so if i give you an example i have um, i've got a client I, i work with at the moment and they have like we identify that they have a really long-term organisational memory. So collectively, they have a really strong identity. They've, they've, many of them have worked there for many years. And um, they can tell you things that happened in, you know, the 1980s, the 1990s, and um, and there's an there is there has been some frustration um, in some of the newer leadership that this, you know, this this kind of sitting around organizational memory stuff is is inhibiting um and actually it's giving people quite it's giving people a strong identity it's giving them strong roots um they are they are less likely to change what it means is that the changes that are coming in will have to be carefully thought through and possibly introduced mm-hmm. at not the rapidity that um the leadership would like and that can be an inconvenient story sometimes like the you know i the leadership yeah, yeah. sitting there going this is really annoying like you're you're speaking for them we don't want them to be um attached to the past you know we want them to be future focused and it's like well if you really want that to happen then just just take your time a bit and give it give it an extra six months yeah. and then and let's put the time in to that's what you're working with that's the material that you're working with and you can choose to pretend it's not but then it probably won't work. So how about we choose to pretend that it is and build in a little bit more time here rather than having to deal with large-scale dissent or, you know, (laughs) whatever. And so you just make your case according to the inquiry. So inquiry comes out, there's some recommendations, you can explain the phenomena, and then then typically um, it's about having some areas of focus. So you know where where should we focus our attention? If we genuinely want culture change, uh, then where are the where are the areas that we want to focus on? And I I I do say to clients, it's like a three to five year thing. 
not necessarily working with me for three to five years. I don't need to be there yeah, for the yeah, whole yeah. thing. But if you're really, if you're serious about it, 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 it won't happen in six to nine months. It just does me. You, you need to give it. It depends on the size of your organisation, of course, of course. But you know, if you're if you're a great big organisation, it, it takes a while. Mm, absolutely. Sorry, there's lots of things in my head, and I'm, and I'm okay. thinking which, you know, it's which just... one. And the, yeah. and the other thing, very briefly, the other thing about codifying and explaining is it's finding ways to, um, it's finding ways to show people, um, what you mean about the culture or how the culture is experienced that are not necessarily words on a board paper. So there is opportunities to use, um, video, to use visuals, to use. Um, creative methods and methodologies to feedback and show um, elements of culture in a different way Mm. so that and particularly to again to boards and to um, you know very senior people who who are you uh, that you know they quite often the status quo is that they're given their information in a particular way and you're not allowed to you know do it differently and I think I, I again I think um one of one of the things that we're trying to do is, is work slightly counterculturally with some of the leadership teams so that they can see how you can do it and and how mm. that can work. You can capture people's attention in different ways. Um, so you know, recent forays into that is something as simple as um, zoom uh, zooming a PowerPoint. You had a sort of six slide PowerPoint thing whatever and actually just yeah just doing a little zoom call and taping the powerpoint and sending them a video of the powerpoint not just the powerpoint um just kind of talking them through it um yeah so you've got that again that's yeah. that's about connection it's it's they're seeing and hearing they're not just getting a two-dimensional powerpointy cold thing that they're used to getting the powerpoints are pretty um or look good not pretty as you know but you know what i mean like we make sure the powerpoints yeah, and i mean yeah, and, yeah. and simple and have visuals on them but then also just doing a sort of very brief video that goes alongside them so that you're delivering your information in a more face-to-face way um so this, i've been sort of playing around with all of this stuff and um you know yeah. this is but it's uh, again it's an iteration f- for me for my practice because I, I come from a background of doing lots of dialogic work which is lots of group work and getting people talking together and and, and speaking truth to each other um and then a couple of days ago i um i started properly a few weeks ago i started properly reading the culture code which is daniel Coyle's work um only to discover that you know that uh Things around um, safety, belonging, um, shared risk and vulnerability, and uh, uh, a sense of a shared sense of purpose are the things that you can encode into a culture, which which makes a difference to how well people will work together, how successful they are likely to be in um, coming up with solutions and getting on with each other and all that kind of stuff. And I went, ah, good. Mm. There's, there's, there is some method to all of this as well. So to all of this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so you, you mentioned the culture code by Daniel Coyle. Yes. Is that right? Yes. 
And and so and if somebody wanted to find out more about the the dialogic work that you mentioned, where kind of where would they where would be a good place to go, or who would be a good person to read to find out more about um, if they wanted to, if they're or, or maybe you, uh, so sorry. And I'm then thinking actually, do we need to explain what dialogic work is? I know what it is because um, you and I have talked about it in the past, but I wonder if it might be just useful to explain a bit more about what you mean by that and where people could go to find out more. Um, that was a very long. It's okay, so um, if you want to look at dialogue, so. so um, um, d- dialogue is this thing about how we make meaning between between each other. It's the it's the work that we do between each other. So it's not a, a monologue would be me just talking at, um, and dialogue is talking with. Um, yeah. If you want to look at the more kind of lovely, beautiful, esoteric stuff, look at um, uh, Buber's work, which is the I and the Thou, I Thou. Um, for really practical stuff, I quite like um, William Isaac's work on dialogue. Um, and then there's, you know, sort of famously, there's all David Bohm's very lovely writing. And Bohm was a physicist and was very interested as well. It's the sort of spaces in between those liminal spaces where we create things. Um, all of that work, I think, has stood me in good stead for the culture work, which is kind of forming and emerging for Fuchsia Blue now. And, and, and largely, um, some of that comes from Bill Isaac's um metaphor of a container and one of his uh, metaphors is that one of his experiences was being in a steelworks in I think it was Detroit and realizing Mm -hmm. that he was walking under these enormous vats of molten steel and people were operating safely under you know basically yeah molten steel and you know if, if anything had broken or been breached these guys and girls would be dead. Um, yeah. And he was very curious about that as a metaphor. So what are the containers that hold um, the hot stuff in organisations? What are the, the what, what are the conditions that we need to do to create um, conversations which are tricky or difficult or honest or emotive um, in order for us to be able to move things forward? So... It's very, it's very beautiful work, um, or often it's very beautiful work. But it's also insanely practical. Um, you know, you, you, whenever you're working with a group of people, you try and build a container of trust, of inquiry, of you know, when you're, when any facilitator worth their salt tries to set down ground rules or intentions, that's partly yeah. what they're trying to do. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so also then, um, I, you've, as well as adding to my Julie, uh, let me try that again, as well as adding to my Julie Driver inspired vocabulary of gnarly, we also now have oodly moodly and hell's teeth as well. They've been two of my highlights. Oodly moodly. And I think oodly moodly is one of those ones that sounds lovely in Scottish too. So there's certain things that, you know, yes, oodly moodly. I do say that. What was the other one? Hell's teeth. Hell's teeth. <laughs> oh, hell's teeth. Okay. <laughs> yes, I, I definitely nodded to my father on that one. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> um. Uh, so, a, a, a slightly biased question: um, Do you find yourself being drawn in to the uh, as as the inquirer then, or as the as the facilitator of of the exploration of these areas? Do you find yourself being drawn in? to the um the organization and to the culture and to the um you know, to what's happening and what's going on as well 
um, yeah, I, th- I, I think you have to be you have to be wise to that. Um, so there's all sorts of things that can happen to you. And again, as as a human beast, I seek connection, mm-hmm. belonging, identity. So I seek reinforcement within my client systems. Um, and the risk is that you start to collude. Um, and you know, again, any any uh, consultant who spends um, a period of time with a client, you start to like them. You start to go, oh, well, maybe that's not so bad. Or no, no, they really can't do that. You know. Um, so yeah, that that stuff does. You know, they talk about parallel process. So there's things that happen in in your uh, in the organisational system that you're working with, mm-hmm. and you suddenly discover you're in the same conversation with one of the leaders that that you've seen them kind of play out internally. So you've been brought in to help them make the change and you suddenly discover you're in this they've they've set up a bunch of hoops and fences and you're like oh suddenly I'm not allowed to do my job okay we need to have that conversation um Mm. I I work with a supervisor I have I have somebody who um I yeah I I work with somebody who I, I take my practice to and they look at both my coaching practice but also my consultancy practice as well and that is mm. um it's somebody who I trust greatly who um just helps me look at what's going on and just asks me questions about it it makes me allows me to stay curious about some of the stuff that's playing out um for me that's really important I know not everybody does it like but yeah but I um I take that stuff pretty seriously. I am a real, I am a real geek about my work, by the way. Like I, I, do, I am really serious about the work that I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fairly kind of lighthearted about it at the same time, but like it, my, my work really matters. It's, it's why I'm, I'm realizing this as I, again, as I get older, I'm like, oh, this, yeah, this kind of matters to me. Which is, I, th- I thought you were going to swear again. Then I thought, I thought you were going. I thought you were going to go for this shit really matters, but then you you stopped yourself. Well, I was I was I was nearly, but you know I, I'm trying to be good. <laughs> even with the even with the wide open door that I gave you at the beginning, bless you. I think I've I think I've managed to not swear. Yeah, you have. Yeah, you've done very well. Nice. Yeah, I've never heard of um. I don't think I have. I'm now racking my brain to make sure I'm not making a statement that is untrue. I don't, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of somebody using a supervisor for their consultancy practice. I've, I, I hear it a lot for coaching practice, yeah. uh, and I, I have one for my coaching practice. But yeah, you made me think I don't, I don't use, I don't use them for my consultancy practice in that way. I guess you know. So there's, there's some, there's some friends and colleagues that I trust that I will, you know, talk about my work with and ask for the you know, thoughts and opinions on, but not in a formal kind of supervision way that's got that's an interesting thought and i've thought about that before i don't know i just i thought loads of people did it um and maybe i mean terribly grandiose uh it just it helps because i i think i do a lot of work uh by myself like i I do work gloriously now there's there are more and more people coming to work uh, with future blue and alongside the work um but you know I, i do there's a lot of the work and the thinking and the um contracting and the negotiation and stuff which which sits with me and it just it's a really helpful um it's a really helpful conversation to make sure that I'm not falling into some of my more regular traps around mm. um yeah just you know 
selling myself short, doing myself down, you know, it, or wh- whatever it may be. Um, the old, you know, imposter syndrome that kicks in every now and again with everybody, I think. I don't, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I just, um, yeah, I, I, I think often mm. I'm, I am brought in to be different and to make a difference if I possibly can without, and I'm not saying that to sound yeah, like, you know, just kind of very pompous or oh, I'm brought in to make a difference. But but holding difference, um, being in a, being different and holding your difference, if, if that's what it is that you're, you've been brought in to bring, hmm. it, it requires, yeah, it requires something of you. So again, if I'm talking about identity and belonging, I'm often brought in not to belong. I'm often I'm often brought in to yeah, not yeah, identify, yeah. and um, and you know you've you I think it's wise to think about that stuff um, and what it does to you, what it can do for you. You could go a wee bit a wee bit bonkers, I think, if you're not careful. Who's to say I've not? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm con- that, yeah. So another thought that's gone off in my mind then is, um, uh, I wonder if, because what, what so if I think about when I was working within an organisation, would I, um, would I have thought about having a supervisor slash individual that I would go to and check out my practice with? Yeah, so yes, I might have my line manager there to support me, and I suppose maybe I might have a coach that I would work with, and that might help me. But I guess I'm just I'm putting myself in in the place of you know somebody in in an, working within the fields that we work in within an organisation, and it, it wouldn't it's a thought that would never have occurred to me, and I'm I'm now sat here thinking actually could that be hugely beneficial for for individuals, you know, as as an independent consultant, I've yeah, I've thought about it and you know and I've got as I said I've got you know I've got a supervisor for the coaching practice that I do I've got people that I trust that I talk to about some of the consultancy work that I do um but would I have ever thought about doing that if I was working within an organization I don't think I would because it's not part of the it's not part of what's kind of laid out as a as a, as a thing to have that was really well, and, incoherent and, 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 and by who you know who says that you need a supervisor for coaching? Who who says we do any of these things? Uh, you know, it it works for me. It's 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 yeah. one of the things that helps me remain clean-ish, confident-ish, thoughtful-ish. Um, is that I uh, I have somebody who I meet uh, just probably every couple of months or so. But I do I I write as well. Obviously, me being me. Um, because writing is a big part of my reflective practice. Um, so I sort of tend to write, okay, this is going on and there's this wee thing that keeps happening in this client's so I can't work out what's happening and I can't work out why I'm not getting traction or I've put in this idea and I know I, I know that there's a, a real nugget in here which will be useful and it's just not being listened to. Or I... Um, uh, f- feeling very much like I can't speak tr- truth to power in this situation that I'm um, that I'm being seen as you know mm. whatever I'm not I'm I'm not going to start a gender conversation right now but um, you know I, you can see the world through through gendered eyes and and some of the stuff that can play out you start going is it is it because I am a girl um, 
and yeah. and all of those sorts of things. And I think for me, it's just been really useful and affirming and challenging to have those conversations safely outside of um, outside of friendship groups and connections, outside of um, anything else. Really, it's quite it's quite a clean space for me, and I I value it immensely. Mm-hmm. Immensely, actually. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a wee bit of self indulgence in some ways, but but it's it's um, it's a bit like going to a spa. I think you know you just it just allows you to de de something, de stress, de declutter, whatever it is. I think it's a wee bit like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um. So a couple of things that I noted down earlier on that I just wanted to add in um, on uh, and and uh, this is where I run the risk of doing kind of blatant self promotiony stuff. But anyway, let's roll with it. So previously on the podcast, we've had Monica Parker on episode 23 and she talked about um, some of the ways that uh, within her company Hatch, they gather that cultural data in a way that isn't kind of words and text and bullet points. Um, and one of the things that always that I really liked about what they do is they use an app called Fido, mm-hmm. which is a which is a photography app. So yeah. it's where you know, people use it to capture pictures of things that you know things that have meaning for them in the workplace, um, which I thought was a really interesting, nice thing to do. Um, if people are interested in, um, so Jules mentioned imposter syndrome, um, episode sixteen of the podcast, no seventeen of the podcast, is with me uh, interviewing Amanda Arrowsmith about that very topic. So if you if you're not sure what that is or you want to find out more about that then you can head back to episode 17 to find out more about that as well um and i think i want to wrap it up jules if that's all right it's fine with me my darling absolutely grand because there's there's been loads and loads of stuff in there which um i think has been useful and interesting for me and uh, and for the fair listener as well I'll, I'll pull all the stuff we talked about so the martin luther king quote um, references for the dialogic work so for I, Thou and William Isaacs and David Bohm, did you say uh-huh, that? Yes. Bohm, Bohm. Um, I'll pull that together um, so we'll put all of that in the show notes as well. Oh and the Culture Code by Daniel Coyle so I'll, I'll pull all of those together and put them in the show notes um, so if, if um, anybody wants to read more or find out more about those things then they can do that as well. Also if you do, if there are any other uh, Julie Driver inspired words that have come out of the podcast for you, fair listener. Please feel free to get in touch. Um, you can. Yeah. Oh, don't make this a thing. <laughs> no. <laughs> God, we're doomed. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. All right. So, is there anything else then, Jules? Um, is there. Oh, no, sorry. A couple of standard questions before we go there. Is there anybody that you would recommend that we should go and seek out to get on the podcast? Um, uh, anyone you think, oh yeah, you should go and talk to them because I think they'd be really interesting. Um, I I tend not to answer those questions partly because a I think you're doing very well without me, so that's fine. Um, and <laughs> okay, um, yeah, and, and I, can't, I I I don't like sort of singling anybody out. So I I, I think just roam wide and get get somebody who's. Get someone who's like really anti-emotion. Get someone who's like super cold. Um, who's just like this is all a bunch of bollocks. Get get them on because like yeah on. that okay. I would listen to. <laughs> okay. Countercultural. 
countercultural. All right. Okay. I will write that down. Lovely. Um, and beyond what we've talked about already, are there any other books or videos or, um, you know, any, any other resources that you would signpost people to either that you think, you know, other that we you would think would be useful or helpful or that we've talked about as we've worked our way through? Um, my, my kind of standard response to that is um, seek stuff out. So use your social media and your algorithms to seek things out that perhaps you've not looked at before. So I would put some time aside every month or so just to read widely, to be nosy and curious and, and disappear down certain rabbit holes for a wee while and just go where the curiosity takes you. There is so much out there at the moment and um, it can be overwhelming. But just think about what interests you and, yeah, go, go seek. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. In that case, then, is there anything else then, lovely Julie Driver, that you're thinking, feeling or would like to say before I pull the podcast together for a close? Uh, no, I think I think I am replete. Um, thank you very much for for oh, the opportunity, and um, and I'm I'm off to grin and say thank you to um, bus drivers. Good, that's what I like to hear. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> <laughs> All right then, Jules. Thank you very much. Thanks, my love. I'll see you soon. See you soon. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. Written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox. Edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.